Coming up next, the bookening reads Anna Karenina. to the booking and happy new year to all our listeners it's now 2017 we could not be happier to be coming at you with season two of the booking starting it out with a great russian novel by mr leo tolstoy and i am joined here today for the first time in 2017 by two of my very good friends there is the pastor who is master still in 2017 of reading mr jacob menzel how you doing sir I'm doing well. How are you? Oh, I'm doing well. Are you excited about this year? We got a patriot in the White House now. <clears throat> excited about this year? <laughs> yeah, I'm very excited about this year. We got some exciting things on the table for Warhorn Media, right? I'm very excited about that. Yes, yes. Sure. Everything's going to come up Warhorn Media this year. It can't hurt that we have a patriot in the White House, right? Brandon Chastine, PhD, ABD? It never hurts. Never hurts to have a patriot in the White House. And speaking of patriots, we have three patriots... Right here. Yeah. Who I already introduced, so I don't have to segue into introducing them again. Today we are going to discuss Anna Karenina. That's how it's pronounced, right, Brandon? Yes. <laughs> Forgive us, all you Russian scholars. We don't know how our pronunciation is going to be, but we're going to... At least we're not reading the Brothers Karamazov the or brothers Karamazov yeah. or... Or the idiot. The I- Yeah. The, I diet. I, I diet. I diet. I diet. Idiot. Idiot. Or war and... Peace. Warren Piace. Wait, Warren Piace. <laughs> okay. Uh, idiot. Idiot. <clears throat> idiot. We do Russian. Uh... <laughs> Hello and welcome to Russian book podcast. <laughs> I am humble and obedient comrade and I'm joined by two other humble and obedient comrades to state cause of book learning. And the first one is the local bishop who also is a reader of books. <laughs> Jacob Mensilevich, how are you, comrade? Good. <laughs> and I am also joined by Dagonet Scholar at American University, Mr. Brandon Chastiliavonovich. Hey. How are you, comrade? Um, swell. <laughs> and today we are discussing a great novel by great Russian... I can't do this anymore, folks. It's me, Nathan Aberson. Not, oh, Nathan. Yeah, joined by not Jacob uh, <laughs> Mensilovich, but, uh, but but Mr. Jacob Mensil, past pastor who's master of reading. Brandon didn't go to a decade. Well, actually, you did go to a decade in an American university. That was but, true. Uh, that's okay. That part was true. But he's Brandon Chastine. Birds keep flying into the glass. Yeah. We're doing this in a slightly interesting location right now at the home of a friend of ours, and birds are flying into the glass. You might hear some a fire roaring it's a crackling fire and a winter day and a very russian feeling jake's wearing a big poofy russian hat yep and staying perfectly still i am uh 11 so yeah jake is 11 i'm 11 and so i'm i'm playing the part you should see my beard right now mm-hmm. it's huge <laughs> huge mm-hmm. huge <laughs> it's huge <laughs> so you guys excited for 2017 got some big plans anything interesting um no did you guys get anything good for christmas no 
What's that sound? <laughs> it's the sound of the six shooters. I got these new six shooters, though. Oh, all right. Wow. Look at those. They're silver handled and. Yeah, they're nice. Hopefully, I won't shoot Jake with one of them. <laughs> yeah. We'll see what kind of surprises this year has in store. We're, we're trying to do a straight good podcast. No phantoms, no deaths, no machinery. But uh, yeah, Brandon just shot off his six shooters, which means this is the time for the contextual text. And Brandon's going to give us some much needed context about this work. And he's from Texas. That's how that ties in if you're just joining us for the first time and he's going to give us some context about Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy. Take it away Brandon. All right let's do this. Um, I figure we could start with just giving providing some background to where Russia was at the point of when this novel was written. I think this novel was set in the 1860s 1850s, 1860s. Don't like that. I never actually confirmed that. It was written in 1877. It was one of the last novels that Tolstoy actually wrote. Actually, let's just start with Tolstoy. He was born to a noble family um, in the, the 1820s. He was of the landed gentry and went off to university where he was noted for being an awful student and quickly left, went to fight in some wars with his brother, got into some gambling debt, just a generally kind of a rowdy life as a young man. And then he started to write and um, quickly became known for his realist portrayals of the Crimean War. Not the Crimean War. Was it the Crimean War? For War and Peace? or No, 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 no. I want to say it was the Crimean War that he was kind of reported on. Yeah, <laughs> from actually his participation in it. And he was married to, oh, what was her name? Do either of you guys remember? Mm, Mrs. Tolstoy? Mrs. Tolstoy. I had this in my head, but then it's gone. Oh, well. I will just sit here and judge you. Yeah, no one judge me. It's fine. I should have known this. Sophia. That's, Sophia, that's her name. I kept wanting to say Selena. <laughs> Selena Tolstoy. <laughs> Selena Tolstoy. <laughs> Sophia Tolstoy. And interestingly, they had a very passionate, love-filled relationship at first, but then there's evidence that they kind of had a miserable relationship towards the end of their marriage. Just some things that are interesting side notes for their relationship, given this novel. There's one letter, our entry into Sophia's diary that we have, where apparently she had been transcribing Tolstoy's diary and was disturbed by his early escapades as a young man. And so a lot of people think that that inspired the point in this novel where Levin gives... Kitty his diary before they get married so that she can read it. It's almost, in a way, Tolstoy doing penance for not having told his wife these things before they were married. He, Tolstoy, was kind of a conservative in the sense that he wasn't for the complete liberation of the serfs, but he, because he was a landed gentry, and but he did towards the end of his life get more radical religious views, and you see this reflected in this novel here. He was for peace, was a totally against war, and he was for the good inside of each man, and and eventually renounced his writing of novels. He actually, uh, towards the end of his life, would turn his back on both War and Peace and Anna Karenina. And this was his last novel, right? Yeah, this was his last novel. And you can kind of trace his spiritual development and where he's going in the novel and what happens with Levin and all that. Yeah, he abandoned fiction writing after this, and he wrote some other esoteric religious things. Like and treatises and treatises, philosophical yeah. stuff. And then eventually abandoned abandoned his family and after a fight with his wife and died miserable alone and cold in a russian train station a train station of all things i know bum 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 
almost like he was foreshadowing his own death with this novel. Yeah, I think he he ran out on his wife a few times and kind of came back and had a weird... My understanding is that his relationship with her, Kitty and Levin, are pretty base, based on them, and they had yeah. that kind of relationship, and that's what he's drawing on, and it was a very good relationship until a certain point when he decided to renounce his worldly goods, and she wasn't such a big fan of that, and they had some children die, maybe, and some, some hardships that kind of drove them apart. So he was kind of in and out, you know, trying to renounce and then coming back. And then I think literally 14 days before he died, he ran out on her and then died in a cold Russian. And then there was fights back and forth about who his who the rights to his novels would go to i think she eventually did win them but only a few years after his death or initially it was given to some religious sect or something like that so anyway that was good i didn't know that yeah and so home life and family was very important to tolstoy and you see this throughout his novels war and peace ends with an extended segment of all the couples finally being happy and together at the end of the novel tolstoy drew very closely on what he knew and you can see this throughout his books the world that he was a part of would have been, like I said, this landed gentry in Russia. And also, he would have had some experience of the courts, but especially these upper classes and the soirees that they had in both Petersburg and Moscow. And you see this throughout his books as well. And in both of his novels... He has one character who's a stand-in for himself, at least that's what most critics think. You have Pierre in War and Peace and in Anna Karenina, it's Levin. And most people think that that is supposed to be Tolstoy. Levin is Tolstoy. I know a lot of the detail, like, for instance, the fact that Levin forgets his shirt or can't get a shirt at the wedding was something that happened to Tolstoy when he married Sophia. And just a lot of the stuff is just ripped straight out of his life. And it's pretty obvious in reading the book that it is. Yeah, that he sympathizes with this character. Right. Yeah. And so, and Pierre is very similar in War and Peace, if we ever get a chance to read that. There are a lot of similarities between Pierre and Levin. But to, to go back to that point about him being a careful observer of his society, a lot of people note this about him and his ability to capture in just a small detail, like Anna lifting her finger when she's taking a sip of her coffee cup at the end. All these refinements that he just, he'll note, just they're masterful. And they can set up a character and really capture a character in just a few details or in just a few things that they might say. That's why a lot, and I would argue that he is the Shakespeare of the novel, that his ability to capture personality and capture psychology and all these things through just like a red handbag for Anna Karenina, for example, is just, it's, it's perfect. And um, it's really matched by no one except for maybe Lady Austin. I think you'll, but we'll get to all that later. This is getting out of uh, context here. Then to just back up a little bit, I keep mentioning the fact that he's landed gentry. And so to just give a picture of what Russia was at this time, it was this huge empire to an extent coming out of an empire, at least, and heading into a lot of turmoil between the ruling classes and the ruled classes. And so its history was, it was the largest land empire in maybe history. I don't know if the Roman Empire matched it in size. Do you happen to know? You mean just the largest amount of Yeah, and, and that's, that's that important because that itself provides just this extreme impossibility of governing this place. And so you would always have turmoil come up with them with just trying to keep the government stable. And not only that, you had this weird mystic identity that comes out of the orthodoxy, and you might can speak more to that, what the Russian Orthodox Church would have been like at the time, but it, certainly more rooted in ritual and mysticism than the churches in Europe would have been. And so that provided certainly a flavor to Russian society. You see it in, oh, what's her name? Alexei's friend. Oh, uh, 
Countess Lydia. Yeah, the Countess. You, you see it there with the seer who comes towards the end of the novel. And this, you, you see it in War and Peace some with some weird ritualistic things that happen with going into the churches. And how this helped to control and work with the government at the time. So the church and the state were very closely united. And, I mean, the most famous example we have of this in Russian history is Rasputin with the Romanov families. Uh, Just to explain about Rasputin, since people might not know, he was a mystic, he was a healer, he was became an advisor and friend to what the princess at the time or just part of her entourage and eventually accumulated quite a bit of power enough that he was a threat and they they took him out yeah so similar in a way to what the roman catholic church was in italy but with a different twist to it if anybody knows anything about byzantium and the holy roman empire in constantinople it would have been a little bit more similar to that so you have that but then you also have the fact that it's a growing empire and it's being influenced inevitably by Western culture. And so what it wants is it wants to be French. All the, when I say it, I mean the Russian elites, the Russian nobility, the aristocrats. They want to be French, they want to be German, they want to be British, and they want to have those sensibilities. And so you see this in these upper-class dinners and balls that you get all throughout the novel. And it's the aristocratic elite attempt to be and to establish this courtly culture, this Western culture of rich living, uh, good living. And what comes with that is this kind of, I guess, more of a French identity of the relationship between husband and wife and suitors. And so this, it's all throughout War and Peace, and it's all throughout this novel as well, where it's just expected that adultery will be something that happens. The men will go off and they will woo and bed young ballet dancers and beautiful young princesses, and their wives will be wooed by and bedded by young up-and-coming generals and commanders. You see a little bit of this, not to the not to this level, but it's a little bit like what you see in um, Pride and Prejudice, where it's expected that the women will go and flirt with the, the officers, and the officers will flirt with them. But this is to a new level. And then you see this like in Madame Bovary and in other books of other French books about the same sort of aristocratic circles. And this is why this is where the French influence is coming into Russia. And it was just expected. And so some of this weirdness and for example, the well, I'm sure we'll talk about it, but when that young guy comes and tries to flirt with Kitty and Levin kicks him out of the house, everybody's shocked because that was just expected. He was supposed to be flattered. Like Stepan says, you're supposed to be flattered. He's, he's flirting with your wife, you know, but Levin, his relationship to it is, is interesting to talk about. When Dolly visits after that, Anna and yeah. all the people are doing the exact same thing to Anna and Vronsky is pleased by it. Yeah, and you get that right back to back, which is brilliant. Do- so, Dolly's whole visit is brilliant, but I suppose we'll yeah. get to that. So you have that, and then you also have um, mirrored in Russian culture. So I, I talked about this religious austerity and weirdness, and then you have this new Western influence. You also have this belief in the destiny of Russia, in the seriousness of the Russian purpose, and especially how they're going to achieve that purpose through suffering, develops into these big myths and mythologies that Russia has about itself. And so one of the biggest ones would have been Napoleon's invasion of Russia in 1812 and how that just haunted Russian history. It's very similar in a way to how the American South worked. This just belief that God had a special purpose for Russia and that they had to have this faith that it would be worked out in 
their history and that they are the Russian people. And it's interesting to uh, note this because we still see it today and it helps us understand kind of our own situation since we may be headed to war with Russia, with Russia fairly soon if things don't get fixed. And you see this mirrored then in the austerity of like Alexei Alexandrovich. He is more of this Russian identity versus like Stepan Oblonsky. And in the novels, these get represented by the two cities. You get, you have St. Petersburg, which is the more austere one, which is where Oblonsky goes if he wants to purify himself. And then you have Moscow, which is more of the Paris of um, Russia. And so War and Peace, you have this reflected in the War and Peace is actually a little bit between Russia and France, but it's also between the two cities. And so you also see that reflected in Anna Karenina. Does that provide us enough kind of historical background to situate ourselves? Oh, well, one thing then to also talk about is you had the court of the emperor and uh, starting with the Ivans who sort of solidified the Russian state. The influence of Europe would come in through their courts as well in the way that they would establish their gentry. And so it was a very hierarchical system. You had the emperor and then you had his very close families who would be a part of the noble court. And we don't really see many of those families at all in Tolstoy's novels. That, that world is kind of closed off to us. But then below them, you have the men who were given land, and they were the landed gentry, very similar to what we discussed with um, with Austin, yeah. That's basically all of our heroes are that class, right? In fact, you get the, the time when you actually get to see it affect them all is when they have that political rally, and uh, Vronsky's there, Oblonsky's there, Levin's there, and that's because their land is all affected. And what would happen is on each of the landowners' property, they would have serfs who were almost like slaves. And they would be bound to work for that property owner and then share in the profits. And so one of the political things that is happening throughout this novel is the landscape is shifting. Well, where I kind of started saying Tolstoy was a conservative earlier and then backed off because I realized we needed this background first. So we'll, go, we'll actually go back now and talk about what I mean there. He wasn't as anxious to completely change the serf-landowner relationship as were other people, like the Sergei, his uh, Levin's brother. He was interested in treating the serfs better than they were treated. And in that way, he was revolutionary. He wanted some of the, many of the ideas that Levin has towards giving his serfs more of responsibility towards the land, more of a share in the profit. Those were Tolstoy's ideas. And he did want to treat his serfs right and well, but a lot of people, I think, tend to see Tolstoy as this big liberal, agendaed leftist thinker, and that's not necessarily true. He still had a lot of loyalties to this landed gentry mentality. What we do see is the beginnings to what will become the um, communist revolution in the early 1900s, because a system like this, where you have an emperor who is pretty much oblivious to everything else that's happening, and his court that surrounds him, and then you have his landed gentry that are having to deal with the people, but most of them are like Oblonsky. They would just rather be in Moscow and get as much money as they can off of their land, and then sell it to these new trading class men. So there's that scene where he sells his woods to that one guy, and you're just asking for there to be upheaval. And we see it a little bit in this, where you have the Zemstov courts coming about, where the villages that are spotted throughout these landowners' property, because they would have actual villages where their serfs would try to give them more political say, but that eventually wasn't going to be enough. There would just would still be oppression, and trying to then make the worker and the aristocrats more equal would cause this communist upheaval. And the revolution of, and the death of Nicholas and Alexander, all that stuff, when is that? That's like real turn of the century. It's right, right? after Tolstoy dies, right? right after. It's like 19... 
early 1910s early 1910 and then that is just straight into lenin and then stalin right yeah and so you see a lot of this in this novel here the relationship between the worker and their overlords i guess the only really other thing to talk about with tolstoy is where his position is within russian literature it's interesting because russian literature had its flowering right around tolstoy and a lot of the art that was coming out of Russia, especially with literature and music, was unparalleled. Trying to figure out why that's the case is is interesting because the stuff that was being written in um, France, like Flaubert, those guys, they were trying to do. Victor Hugo, to an extent, was very in in Tolstoy admired Victor Hugo. We're doing things that Tolstoy would do, but Tolstoy just took it to another level. And so you had Tolstoy and you had Dostoevsky and you had Chekhov all writing around the same time. And they're known as being probably the three greatest writers of that era. And they were coming out of this state that considered itself to be backwards and that the West certainly considered to be backwards too in relation to itself. And so I, I don't think there's any doubt that Tolstoy is the better writer than, say, Dickens, or that he's the better writer than Flaubert and these guys who were writing at the same time as him. And so why that's the case, I don't know. But but all that to say is that this was the this was the golden age of Russian literature when Tolstoy was writing. It would have been very similar to time when Shakespeare was writing with Shakespeare and Ben Jonson and those guys. This was the flowering of their language. Before that, the major writers and influence that would have come, you had some sagas and stuff in old Slavic history. But the one who really, I guess, brought Russian literature onto the global stage would have been Evgeny Pushkin, who wrote um, Eugene Onegin, which I think he's mentioned in this novel. Tolstoy it really admired Pushkin. And what Pushkin was famous for was bringing sort of this Western sensibility of story and narrative to Russian literature. And then after him, you would have uh, some others like Lermontov and then... Uh, Oh, what's O Gogol, who wrote Dead Souls. And then finally, you would get these three who would um, write at the same time Dostoevsky and Tolstoy. And there's evidence that Dostoevsky always felt intimidated and inferior to Tolstoy. And then you have Chekhov, who was a brilliant playwright and a short story writer, who in many ways um, carries on the tradition of Tolstoy. And so uh, most people throughout even Europe knew that Tolstoy was just a force that was beyond them. Trying to remember who it was. Oh, it was Matthew Arnold in Britain said that Tolstoy didn't write literature, he wrote life. And one critic, I can't remember who it was, they make a separation between the types of writers who write literature that's almost like it just grows. It just grows and it comes out and it's natural. It's like it's something that's always just been there versus people who put things together and it's very mechanical, and you can tell it's been built. One of the most obvious examples of someone that writes things that are mechanical and looks like they've been built, well, Hemingway would have been kind of like that. T.S. Eliot would have very much been like that. But these men who would have been just like, it's it's just something that's always existed, would have been like uh, Shakespeare and Tolstoy. These guys who just, they, no one, they seem like they just, the stories, I don't know even how to explain it. Well, it's a scene but, like they go to Italy and nothing happens. Yeah, you're writing a you're writing a soap opera. You have something exciting happen, and of course Tolstoy is doing things, and it all ties in. But you spend time with Levin on the land. It just feel it feels like you just you know if it was a movie, you just dropped some cameras down and you saw what everybody did for a year, and some of it tied together, and maybe a little bit of it didn't, and it's very organic. Yeah, and a part of it is because he's just a, he's a master of realist style. Yeah, I I keep wanting to compare it to painting. Yeah. To hyper realism. Mm-hmm. I mean, 
Yeah, so he has an awareness of people, but he also has an awareness of nature, and he can paint a picture with words. You can you feel like you're there hunting with them. I was just going to say the hunting scene. It's like I know what hunting was like then, yeah. and I felt it, and it's interesting. And there's this scene in War and Peace where they go hunting in the winter, and then they end up going to this guy's cabin out in the middle of the woods. And to this day, I can still I feel like I was on that hunting trip with them. It's like it was it's a memory of mine. I don't know how. Yeah, or mowing grass. Yeah, the... yeah, that's a great. It's just it's you don't know how he does it but you feel like you're there in this story with them. Did he invent, I, I saw on Google and in, in some random research, somebody trying to make the claim and it was one of those hot take articles. So I wasn't sure how, you know, it was probably on like Slate or uh, the Federal, I don't know what it was, but, or what point of view they were even coming from it. But they said, Tolstoy invented stream of consciousness. And I was like, no, he didn't really. Well, but... which came first, Notes from the Underground or, I think Notes from the Underground. Notes, notes from, from the Underground is often pointed to as the first stream of consciousness novel. I mean, the Russians were very experimental and there are a lot of things that he's doing with voice and with playing the story side by side that's very... Interweaving two major stories and then shifting points of view. It's just, it's very masterful. You never get tripped up by it, really. But I don't know of anybody that I've read that I can think of off the top of my head where you can go, he can go so deeply into someone's head. I mean, particularly Kitty's, you know, the birth scene Uh or... Levin, post proposal, Levin. Or the little boy. The little boy, yeah. What's his name again? Uh, I don't know how to oh, pronounce man, it. Man, that's Sir Yaz. Yeah. Sir Yoza. Sir Yo- yeah, I don't know. We're going to butcher Yoza. that one, folks. But um, yeah, just his ability to. I, I can't think of a predecessor that did that much of just like Anna's death is probably the most famous example where you're in her head you see her wry sense of humor about it you feel her pull back you feel her kind of dance with it and spin around and get confusing yeah 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 and then I mean it's not it's not necessarily stream of consciousness because you still feel like the narrator's telling you what her thoughts are I mean it's not as gonna it's not in the sense that Ulysses is stream of consciousness but then Ulysses is just garbage right <laughs> insofar as we just define stream of consciousness as garbage it's not in fact that you still have a storyteller telling you what she's thinking but it mm-hmm. is her thoughts and the trying to figure out what tolstoy actually thinks about all this is something that's really interesting and i suppose will we'll yeah and that is one other thing to say about it i i never verified this but i had a teacher when i read this in school tell me this story and so let's assume it's true that tolstoy started to write this novel in an attempt to condemn Anna Karenina and to condemn this sort of adulterous society that he hated. Actually, he has a book on art where he just spends the first few chapters just ranting about ballet and how it's licentious because people wear tight leotards up on stage and they're writhing about and he doesn't see why anyone considers that art. It's just sex. And art is not sex. And he just hates ballet. And I think ever since then I've hated ballet. <laughs> but hey, <laughs> I was going to say, he kind of has a point. Yeah. <laughs> All that to say, what was I going to say? Oh, he wrote this novel to condemn that sort of culture that would go and just be all about the body. And if you notice how many times people have thoughts about other people because of their body and their movements. But instead, it turned into this weirdly nuanced book where you sympathize with Anna, you sympathize with Alexei, you sympathize with Vronsky. And people make, like to make the comment, you know, his, his art just got the better of him. His story just got the better of him. Well, that certainly, in a kind of annoying way, is what the modern critics tend to think in my reading of what people think about the novel now. They're like, Tolstoy in his heart is really progressive and wants to tell this great feminist story of Anna oh. <laughs> striking out. But then the the moralist Tolstoy draws back and kills Anna off in the ultimate move of misogyny. 
And then spends the last few chapters of the book just talking about boring old Levin, you know, coming to some kind of lame spiritual whatever. Well, that's just dumb. Yeah, that, that is dumb. And maybe we'll talk a little bit more about why that's dumb. But but they definitely feel like Tolstoy's empathy is somehow at war with Tolstoy's um, morality. morality and his intellect. And I think there may be something to that. Um, I don't know if it's because he was a feminist. No, I don't think it's because he was But a there feminist. is something going on. It's... I I think his I mean my take was that his compassion was mm-hmm. at war with truth and moral absolutes like yeah. but he understands I mean he pulls back to moral and uh, absolutes and interest I mean one example I think of and we should probably just get talking about this because we're going to talk about it the whole time but that the, one of the things that makes that scene with Dolly so wonderful is that Dolly's in the perfect position to appreciate what Anna did in freeing herself from you know the patriarchal confines and she kind of does she's jealous and she allows herself to fantasize about being Anna and see what's good about what Anna did and then in the end she just wants to go back to her kids and her family and yeah I don't think Tolstoy is trying to make like some kind of you know misogynist point but he really does see everything about the situation I don't know how else to put it I mean he sees why you why you would admire Anna and what you would admire about Anna and he also sees why she's going to destroy herself yeah because he lets and I think that's it for context. Yeah. We'll probably cover everything else as we talk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's the scene where Levin goes and meets Anna. And if he really is a stand-in for Tolstoy, he leaves sympathetic to Anna. But then he realizes, oh, no, I can't be sympathetic to Anna because, A, my wife will kill me. B, I just Which can't. Which she almost does. <laughs> Which she almost does. But more than that, he realized that he was seduced. Yeah. Yep. And that she meant to seduce him. And I think that's the most damning, maybe, moment of Anna where you just realize how calculating she is. Like, she's... She meant to do it. She knew she did it. She was watching herself do it. She watched it happen. She took pleasure in it. And she had a moment with Kitty where she could have had yeah. a nice, sweet time. And instead... Drags that. Instead, yeah. she throws it in her face. Throws it in her face. Yeah. And it it's all she has left is her spite. And it didn't matter to her. It's it's just a very spiteful kind of, oh, here's a guy I can seduce just to prove that I still have it. It's not that Levin was anything important to her at all. No, but it does say that she recognized... She knew why Kitty was attracted to both of them. Mm-hmm. That there was something in Levin that was similar to what she w- was attracted to in Vronsky, and it was a good, a nobility about them. Well, we better get talking about this book because we've already blown up our context because we can't help ourselves. Baggage check. What kind of baggage did you guys bring to this book? Uh, not a lot. Uh, the size of the book. Yeah, the big book. Is some baggage. Like, oh crap, this is an 817-page book. This absolutely uh, fantastic cover that uh, <laughs> the book has. The knees, the famous knees the cover. The knees with the lilacs. With the lilacs. Yeah, it's pretty special. Yeah, it's pretty special. A vague sense that Russian literature is psychological and very dark. And I don't know, as cold, as cold as Russia wintry and cold wintry and, and cold and lacking feeling well it's funny because that's the stereotype but the other stereotype is sweeping vast not lawrence of the arabia but dr Zhivago dances and balls and carriages and doomed lovers and all that kind of stuff is what i think of at least duels and- yeah you remember in steinbeck how he talks about how uh the irish when he first is introducing uh sam how the Irish are gay and funny and mm-hmm. whatever, and it's because they're so sad at bottom. Mm-hmm. A very similar feeling about Russia or Russians, but but with a more cynical edge. Irish with maybe a little more true gaiety and a little more healthy sadness. Mm-hmm. At least that's how I feel. And 
just a more cynical edge. So your baggage was big book. Uh, yeah, Russians so, so are... it's not a lot. I don't bring a lot to this general distaste for all things Russian, maybe. Uh, some real confusion about Russian history. Mm-hmm. Eastern European Russian history is just not something I've spent a lot of time with. So I have like big picture, broad, you know, knowledge, but you get in and start talking about anything that happens around Rasputin. I, I don't remember, you know, it's just and how it works. So I, I was being schooled some throughout the course of this book on uh, the way things worked. But yeah, so, so yeah, not a whole lot. I was pretty open I may have made it sound like I was expecting something terrible, but or you know, or dry or cold and unfeeling, and I, w- I wasn't, and, and in part because I've been prepped to think otherwise about it. Um, right. So yeah, it's no secret that I was a great admirer of this book going in, and I believe Brandon, you were as well. <laughs> oh, what's, yeah. what's your baggage? Well, even in the last sorry to no no, but even ahead. in the last couple of months, I've had a couple couple different people uh, talk to me about having picked up. Was it the death of uh, the death of Ivan Ilyich? Yeah, Ivan Ilyich. Yeah, uh, Jody actually, whose house we're recording this in, is been reading that and was talking to me about it so it's pretty fantastic and it's short yeah most we'll, of what we'll, you we'll, we'll do it sometime when we need a short one instead of winnie the pooh we are planning to do winnie the pooh yeah uh, what's your baggage brandon i believe we've heard you talk some about your love of tolstoy before on the bookening yeah i told most of my baggage on the five books that influenced us the most mm-hmm. available now wherever fine podcasts are downloadable folks yeah i'm thinking what to rehash there i first fell in love with tolstoy when i was 16 that was the book that you you bought war and peace yeah a piano recital right so, well it's it's kind of a tolstoy moment so it was funny it was this big piano competition that takes place in Fort Worth. It's over two weeks, and it's in Bass Hall. I was a young, aspiring pianist at the time. And so there was a Barnes & Noble, the big downtown Fort Worth Barnes & Noble, right across from the Bass Hall. And during the intermissions, all the really rich Fort Worth people would intermingle and drink their champagne down in the Bass Hall. And everybody else, the plebeians who had to sit upstairs, we would all have to disperse. And so I'm sure they were having their little Tolstoy things happening Uh, adulteries (laughs) and all that that comes with being rich and having way too much time on your hands. But I went over to Barnes and Noble and picked up War and Peace and fell in love with it. Um, Read it during all the breaks that I could. Read it many times after that. I've got a copy that's pretty tattered now. And um, I credit Tolstoy for saving me from becoming the kind of guy who read Dostoevsky first. Mm -hmm. So I think that my literary tastes would have taken a very different turn had I picked up, for example, Brothers Karamazov before War and Peace. I read War and Peace first, and when I went to Dostoevsky a couple years later, he really didn't do it for me as much. Mm -hmm. I didn't like the Brothers Karamazov, but he's just that kind of author like Shakespeare was for you, who shapes your taste if you catch him early. He certainly did that for me. And so when I, I read Anna Karenina a couple years after that, and it lived up to what I was hoping it would. I did read it again in a class where I had to read it with a bunch of English majors who wanted to, and it was really one of the most frustrating experiences in my life, but I got through it and... They just wanted to look at it as what? Some of them, you you have two types of English, well, three types of English majors. One type of English major just likes to actually read novels, and that's what they really wished that English studies were about. (laughs) kind of weird. I don't know if I can get behind that. Yeah, but then they find out that that's not what English studies is about. And then you have the other that are want to make it all political and should have gone into political studies. And then you have the third that thought it was going to be an easy degree. And so that's why they do it. And they want to treat every class like a uh, book club. So who was it that made this the most frustrating? Was it the politicians or the... Both together. Both? Yeah. 
there were a lot of the book club types and they just wanted to talk about the fact that they thought that Vronsky was probably cute and right. would they have done what Anna did yeah they yeah, yeah. to be fair Vronsky sounds like he's pretty cute yeah he probably was right. yeah my baggage is somewhat similar I think I read Dostoevsky first actually but I didn't really understand it I think I read Crime and Punishment when I was in the 8th grade and I actually remember my literature teacher in 8th grade seeing Crime and Punishment on my desk and being like hmm and I was very proud of myself for getting a hmm out of him because he was a beloved literature teacher and uh, so I was just proud that I was the kind of kid that read great Russian literature but that was actually really dumb because I didn't really get it. I would advise people, if you are you happen to be of a young age where you're maybe not ready for the, a book, to have the humility to maybe not read it because there are certain books that work a little bit better when you understand a little bit more about life. Having said that, I think I read Anna Karenina sometime around when Brandon sang, maybe 16, maybe even a little bit younger. It was absolute catnip. I mean, it just like, I loved it from the first page. I thought the opening line was really deep. And uh, I'm not sure what I think about that opening line now. I'm sure we'll talk about that. But and and then just his insight into human nature, just again and again and again. Just there was there was a gem on every page, and I loved it. That's kind of my baggage. The only other thing that kind of affected us is that the bookening actually had an aborted attempt to read Dostoevsky earlier last year when we were just getting off the ground. I thought that might be worth mentioning. Just we we actually started reading The Idiot and we gave it up because we didn't like it so much. So my the, the most recent sort of taste of Russian, Russian literature in my mind before we got to uh, Anna was just how lame and weird and juvenile Dostoevsky was. So it was a relief to find that Tolstoy, despite his ample philosophizing and all that, was not anywhere in the same class with Dostoevsky, but was way, 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 way better. Night and day between the two of them. I don't think there's any comparison. I'm not saying Dostoevsky didn't write some good things, but I think Tolstoy is just a master, and Dostoevsky's not. For what that's worth, so that was kind of my baggage. All right, let's talk about Anna Karenina. Who is Anna when we first meet her? What were your impressions of her? Is she a good woman, a bad woman, an in-between woman? When we first meet her? Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. We first meet her, and she's full of joy, and she's dynamic, and she's got a lot of charisma. She's extremely likable. And she's one of those characters a little bit like, um... East of Eden guy. Sam. Sam. Yeah, larger than life. Well, like, you hear about them before you... Everybody in the novel thinks there's something special, uh-huh. which about is always interesting. Yeah. Like, are they... Which is always an interesting question of whether the character's gonna live up to the... Or live down to, or what the author's doing when everyone in the novel is like, have you heard about Anna Karenina? She's the greatest. Yeah, and so she doesn't actually enter the novel until how many chapters in? Several. I Several, mean. and then we have her, and she's laughing, and she's happy, and she's supposed to come, and she's gonna be the one who saves the marriage of her brother, right? Her brother's marriage. And so she's looked to as this force that's a large, significant, but good force in the novel at first. Well, maybe that's a good question to start with then. Is her relationship with and what she does for Dolly and uh, Steva a good thing? Does it speak well of her? That she's willing to come and try to reconcile them? Yeah. Um, That's a hard question. Yeah, well, I... I think it's certainly, at the very least, well-intentioned. It is well-intentioned, but I'm wondering whether it doesn't actually put her immediately on weird, kind of morally dubious footing, because she shows up, she tells Dolly, if I'm remembering correctly, that Oblonsky's capable of total repentance. And And um, she's seen it in 
M. Yeah, and she's seen it in him, and he's just ready to repent. And on some... what she's really seen is his pain, right, and a desire to relieve it for him. The calculating, spiteful Anna at the end of the novel would have no hope, and I'm wondering how calculating she is here, or whether she's. I I think she's. You get this sense that she sort of lives on a plane where she's only moved by. She's not watching or seeing or attending to herself and understanding herself. She's living by her her feelings. And so she's there and she's moved by Stevis' plight and her compassion for Dolly and this just desire that everything be reconciled and right and beautiful again. And she... She's just gonna. She's gonna work within work within that. She loves Kitty, but she got the attention of Vronsky, and she can't bring herself to. She's just totally ruled by her emotions. Yeah, and I think we see this in real life that people can often seem very wise or very deep people because they have huge emotions and they have really no reign over them. Their emotions are just that is their king or queen. And it does everything on their behalf. And so people are just wowed by this. If she had the ability or had some... Because it's interesting. I don't think... Do we ever hear about her parents? Not really. I don't think we ever... Because I was always curious. We get to know... We know Alexei Alexandrievich. Mm. And it makes you suddenly sympathetic with him to know where he came from. We never hear about how they were raised. But Stefan and Anna both... Are very similar. Yeah. Their appetites reign. But they just... They have this ability to woo everyone and to make everyone love them. Mm -hmm. Because they have these big personalities and even to a certain extent i would say us as readers or at least me as a reader it's like you're always kind of prepared to like i mean Stepan rings very true to me you know you know people in real life who are just likable and it doesn't matter if they screw you over it doesn't matter if you know something terrible that they've done they're just simply for whatever reason it's very likable likable. and he's he's one of those i think he's portrayed very well that way Mm -hmm. um and that we as readers and everyone in the novel i mean it's weird that for instance that levin who's basically a much more moral man doesn't doesn't seem to have a problem with him chides him for his adultery maybe a little bit yeah and so i i always i find it helpful to think of anna in relationship to her brother Stepan. Mm-hmm. for yeah. one he is for some reason the novel starts out in their house between mm-hmm. dolly and Stepan, and so and they get the famous opening line which i have thoughts on that line but i think We'll probably save it, right? You know what? This is just going to be a free-ranging conversation. Let's just get as much out of it as we can. And it's not uh, actually my thought, but I forget who said it, so hopefully they won't sue me. But it's that the novel, the whole point of the novel is to turn that first idea on its head. The opening line being, every happy family is alike. Every unhappy family is unhappy. All happy families are alike. Each unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. Which, yeah, it's it's interesting. You're saying the point of the novel is that's a thesis statement and then the novel disproves it? Yeah. Because every happy family has its own unique happiness to it. It's its own flavor of happiness. And um, its idiosyncrasies. Like when Levin finally realizes when he gets married, it's all the things that he thought he was going to hate about marriage. But it's the little details, the small, just the small. Yeah, but what he finds is that like everything that he thought he was going to do different he doesn't and yeah. doesn't want to and can't do differently. And it's exactly like everyone and else. That, yeah, and then the whole sort of spiritual awakening is that this whole time he's just been like an idiot kid who is, you know, roasting raspberries or whatever and eating up his sustenance with his reason and he should just be like everybody else and accept the fact that God is God and he should live for God and not for himself, for his belly. Well, at the same time, though, there's this kind of Chestertonian surprised by normalcy or, yeah. I don't know, Chesterton would say it better, but it's like everything that happens in his relationship with Kitty shocks him and what he's being shocked by is like normal husband wife stuff. <laughs> yeah. 
But I mean, you've got that beautiful scene where he thinks he's just going to ditch her and go see his brother. And she's like, uh, no. And they have to <laughs> actually figure it out and have a big fight. And then she, they get there and she turns out to be awesome and he realizes he's an idiot. Right. Yeah. And he's like, he doesn't know what to do. He's just, yeah, he's an idiot. Well, uh, it's these little surprises that these are the things that can happen in, an, in a happy family. Right. But it's the unhappy families are ha- unhappy because of jealousy and unfaithful. So is there, are the unhappy families basically alike then? There's just, we've got yeah, two Yeah, that's big the argument. And I'm not necessarily saying I agree with it, but the Oblonsky household at the beginning, they're unhappy because of unfaithfulness and because of jealousy. Mm-hmm. And you could argue that Anna and Vronsky, they end up falling apart and becoming unhappy because of unfaithfulness. She keeps assuming that he's going after young women and because of some of jealousy as well. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that thesis holds up. You'd have to see, are there any other, other unhappy families in the novel? I'm trying to think who the major... So we've got maybe... We could say two happy families, I guess, if you count the Sherbatskys, I guess. The, the prince and the princess seem to... Yeah, that's a pretty happy, happy family. Um, Relatively and, happy family. And their daughters are... Um, it's, it ha- you know, at first seems to have a little bit of, of that Mr. and Mrs. Bennett quality about it, but... Yeah, but they both end up having more depth, you know. The prince... Uh, absolutely. We find out that the prince is a very funny man and um, a very warm... And then yeah, the, the princess has her point, even if she's... She's a little bit know, flighty little bit and a busybody and, and all that, but they're both... I love that argument that we get between yeah, them really early awesome. in the novel. That's And the reconciliation between them is pretty good, too. Yeah. Yeah. It's something you would have never seen between the Bennets. Right, yeah, yeah. Part of what you see throughout the novel is that the grass is always greener where it's where it's watered, and you're either watering outside your gate with your fantasies mm-hmm. and your fears, or you're nurturing the relationship you have at home. So they work through, even the Sherbatskys, they work through that little spat and are reconciled. Kitty and Levin are always committed to coming back to each other. Whereas Anna and Vronsky or Anna and Alexei and Steven and Dolly are not. There's broken trust and the grass is greener out there somewhere. The ability to have communication in those good relationships, you know, where they're able to talk through things where Anna and Vronsky simply talk at complete cross purposes. And, um, same thing for Dolly, you know, Dolly and Steva just can't talk about anything anymore. What, what is it that uh, made Anna vulnerable to everything that happened to her did you think did you guys think there was a specific something about her character or is it just that emotional guided by emotional appetites thing that brandon was talking about or well i think she seems like a happy kind of force of nature beautiful lady who does you wouldn't necessarily think would have to do this when we first meet her yeah i think that I think she is ruled by her emotions, and I think that her emotional vulnerability combined with who she married and then Vronsky being Vronsky, I think if it were a different young man, it might not have happened or it might not have happened that way. But yeah, you have this very emotionally needy person. You have her husband. Who's just a cold fish. Who's a cold fish. And you have... You know, she's like, you know, married to him and they have a kid and she's trying to, but she's sort of caught up in the milieu that Brandon was talking about earlier. And suddenly there is a guy that not only is going to, she, you know, you get the sense that she's probably played with that line many times before, but never had anybody be as committed and as uh, persistent as Vronsky and also as capable. And so it was just like, well, there it was. And she couldn't tell herself no. Yeah, the famous scene with this is the ballroom dancing scene. 
Where, where Kitty is devastated. Mm-hmm. And where Anna... So there's also an Anna just... And you see it here at the very beginning, this um, desire to win mm-hmm. and this desire to dom- be the dominant force in a room. Yeah. And so she knows that she's taking Vronsky from Kitty. She means to. Yeah, and she does she it on purpose. She shows up wearing yeah. black instead of lilac. She's a yeah. bit of a seductress. Right. Yeah, I mean... She- She's she likes to be admired. This shouldn't be the poor the story of how poor pitiful Anna was seduced by Vronsky in one sense it is, but she bears a lot of the responsibility for what No, she saw it, you know. She made the eye contact. She's a married woman, he was a single man. Mm-hmm. She made the eye contact. She saw his response to her and she knew that she had there was something about the way that he went to go give money to that guy that she was like yeah that was about me not about them and so she knew she had him on the hook already she planned to take advantage of it to see how far she could take it she felt guilty about it and ran away and yet she was happy and not terribly surprised that he showed up and had followed her i mean i think we've all had that experience of knowing of just in the back of our head maybe we don't even admit to ourselves, but it's like this could go somewhere and hopefully as married men or you know as a monog or you know you wouldn't you wouldn't even probably even let the thought into your head if you could help it but these are awkward things to talk about aren't they they are awkward things to talk about, but I do think that, yeah, a lot of how adultery starts is two two people willing to see who's going to say no first. Right, like a playing chicken or something. Playing chicken. Mm-hmm. And then things get far enough down the road that you've made your bed and now you have to lie in it. Right. Yeah, because the scene where they actually consummate the adultery comes quickly. And mm-hmm. it, it's not necessary. It's there isn't really anything that leads up to it. I right? love that there. It just ha- it's literally it happens. Literally in the novel, there's nothing that leads up to it. It's just yeah. nope. Yep, they did it. Yeah, that it, happened. And you know? now they're sitting there feeling. Yeah, and she knows. She feels horrible about what she's done. She's taken it. She thinks too far. She's especially devastated about her son. Mm-hmm. And the rest is just it plays out the consequences of what has happened. But <clears throat> yeah, as far as her character, whether or not, so what was the question again that we're answering? Oh, I have no idea. <laughs> um, was she the seductress? Yeah, I mean, just uh, where is she? Is this the story of a good woman, you know? Yeah. Um, gone bad or a bad woman that... Well, that's what I was you were, What I was trying to say or going to say before about, you know, do you have, if anything, Tolstoy's compassion at war with his sense of moral absolutes? What he has given us is, in fact, a wicked woman mm-hmm. and a seductress and somebody who has no control over their appetites and he's able to portray her in a very compassionate and sympathetic real way that anybody who knows that kind of woman can recognize yeah but the especially nice thing that i think he does in terms of his artistry is the fact that for a long time in reading the novel the first time you assume that her idea of her husband is correct but then as soon as you start to sort of see from his point of view and then eventually when you find out like brandon said that he is an orphan that there's some reasons you suddenly realize there's a whole well and you see how much he tries yeah you see all these scenes where he's like i'm gonna go in there i'm gonna tell it to her like it is i'm gonna do and then he comes apart at the seams as soon as and all she sees is coldness indifference hatred boring sex you know all she sees is what justifies her continuing to do whatever she feels like right and that's all she ever actually sees throughout the whole the whole novel she only sees what justifies her doing exactly what she feels like in the moment up to and including up to and including suicide right at the end where she's going to get her revenge on everyone Mm -hmm. yeah because the novel plays interestingly with the idea of reason and rationality because one of the can i throw something in 
there. Yeah, before. sorry. Um, no, no, no. I just wanted to, to, to what Jake was saying about Anna. There's this great line where she's talking about her husband to Vronsky. He's not a man, he's a machine, and a wicked machine when he gets angry, she added, recalling Alexei Alexandrovich and all the details of his figure, manner of speaking, and character, holding him guilty for everything bad she could find in him and forgiving him nothing on account of the terrible fault for which she stood guilty before him. Yeah. Sorry, what were you going to say, though? Holding him... Yeah, I think I had that same page marked. Yeah. I just think... One one thing that I love, incidentally, about Tolstoy is that he's so good at showing, and then he's also a master of telling. Like, he'll... He'll enter into your head so you know that that's what Anna's doing. And then he'll give you this great, like, line that would make Jane Austen proud where he's just like, and this is what she was doing. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. You know, he's not afraid of exposition. No, that's great. He's He'll do both. He'll give us the little details about the characters of the black dress or just being low cut enough that you can see, like, her collarbones and mm-hmm. stuff that tell you everything you need to. But then he'll also just tell you. Right, which is great. I mean, I don't resent, you know, it's, it breaks Hemingway's rule. He's like showing us too much of the iceberg here. He's like, let's go under, let's let's take a submarine, let's look at the bottom of the iceberg, yeah. let's look at the tip. But I don't care because he's Hemingway, a genius, so he gets away yeah. with it. Hemingway, buddy, you lose. Right. <laughs> Hemingway. <laughs> Tolstoy wrote the superior novels. <laughs> yeah, he kind of did. And um, so I guess it kind of goes to what you were saying here, the calculating Mm-hmm. side of what she's doing when we get to the end of the novel what levin has to learn to denounce his reason kind of mm-hmm. he says he thinks too much about things and eventually he has to give he has to go away out of that he has to grow out of thinking too much about things and so he has that moment where he's like okay so why is the christian god the right god he's like well I'm, i can't think too much no, about I'm just it not gonna just, think about that. i'm not gonna think about it yeah i'm just gonna accept it it's t- whatever levin just shut up levin right he has to learn how to tell himself to shut up And Anna, her whole stream of consciousness at the end is her inability to tell herself to shut up. Mm -hmm. It's just Mm -hmm. she gets caught in her own wheelhouse. Yeah, it's it's very true. I've seen it in myself. I've seen it Mm -hmm. in others who get caught just in this world of trying to make sense of everything around you, and you end up just becoming this paranoid mess. Yeah, and while you feel compassion, or I felt compassion for the situation that she finds herself in, um, and some of the ways that society treats her, she is just awful. I mean, she tramples everybody. She treats Vronsky like crap at the end, in a way that he actually doesn't exactly deserve. She, The way that she's accidentally playing mind games with her son is pretty unforgivable. Like, yeah, sure, mom wants to see her boy Boy, but if you have any sense of what you're going to do to this kid, she doesn't want anything but what she wants. Yeah, she doesn't care her. about. She doesn't care about anybody him. but herself. She could care less about the daughter that she had with Vronsky. She's actively like just apathetic. Like she knows she is apathetic towards her. But she wants to have this image of being the perfect great mother. Right. So she's going to bring all the toys to her son, and she does a good job of making Alexi seem like a monster. Mm-hmm. So, like you said, until we actually get to see Alexi. And his big goofy ears and his just coldness and right. his inability to see a woman cry. Right. He has, yeah, he's he's more of a... When I first read this with the book club women mm-hmm. in that class, they all hated Alexi. Oh, I'm sure. But the second time around, I was much more sympathetic to Alexi. Yeah, I mean, he's, he's, he's like a bumbling idiot. Everything that he tries just, I mean, turns to crap and he always is going to do it. He's got it figured out and then it doesn't work and he doesn't know himself at all. And he's just, to me, he's one of the most sympathetic characters in the book. I don't think it's i don't think there's any uh uh how to say this there's not it shouldn't be a surprise that he's led around by anna here he's led around by lydia right here, you know like a bull being led by the ring in his nose right yeah. he's just he's emotionally broken 
and vulnerable. Yeah, but like he wants like to. Yeah, he wants to give this front of being very secure and very. Yeah. So every all he knows how to do is posture and project, and that served him well actually in his political career right. up to a point until it suddenly doesn't. Then he, hit a, then he had a ceiling and right, which he was always going to because he's not actually a great man, right, or capable of anything original. I guess where I feel compassion for him is that within his limited, broken, emotionless kind of inability to deal with things, he actually he is always trying his best. He's trying. Yeah. And um, I don't think... And so there's a certain nobility about him in that sense. And even at the points where Tolstoy condemns him and says, at the end, he doesn't... He basically says, you know, he do- doesn't have the moral strength to, to live by these principles that mm-hmm. he wants to aspire to. He's going to get caught back in the machinery here and there. Mm-hmm. You still see this, this earnestness and this sort of like... What's the what's the word? You see what's going on inside of him. This like uh, regret or remorse mm-hmm. over his inability to resist the fact that he doesn't have the strength. Like he is, it vexes him. Yeah, you can see where he probably wished he could have been a better husband to her. You know, if we do him the most charity, I'm sure he wanted well, he to emotionally that. connect her with her. Um, one of the things that the, towards the end of his storyline is Tolstoy says he thought of all the ways that he had failed Anna. Yeah, yeah. Right, that he didn't challenge Vronsky to a duel when Anna first right so all these ways that he had just failed to be and and there are real ways that if he would have done some of just the most basic things that he actually could have won Mm-hmm. If he would have challenged Vronsky to a duel, he could have won mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Anna. If he would have just said the right, he just does. The, he's so emotionally clueless. He just does the exact opposite of mm-hmm. the right thing to do. And Anna actually is so blinded by her selfishness that with Vronsky becomes the one person that she can't deal with anymore because she 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 she's handicapped in an opposite way or very similar way actually as Alexei is she's because of her fear because of her all the same things that alexi does to drive anna away anna ends up doing very similar parallel things to drive vronsky away Mm -hmm. and she just can't help herself yep and for him it's a really they're both emotionally clueless he's just clueless as to how to begin to engage with emotions and she's clueless as to how to tame them basically right did it make while we're talking about him did it make sense to you guys that he eventually became some kind of weird mystic and was following this goofball totally totally but explain that i mean how does how do you go from a cold legalistic guy to a he had a perfect vision of who he was and it was shattered and he was a broken man and he had nowhere to turn and this other different sort of leech came into his life and he was ready to just find some companionship somewhere and regain some sense of superiority over people you know before he had this sort of pharisaical superiority about his you know political successes and he but he had a ceiling there he had his sort of pharisaical you know everything's clean and in order in my life and we presenting this certain appearance to people that's gone so now what can he do where can he go to maintain that he has to maintain that that's his mo that's what he mm-hmm. gets on with and so all that's left to him is this like well here's a path it's this spiritual mysticism thing that allows you to feel superior to people for your magnanimity and your commitment to your mystic christian principles mm-hmm. and i grew up with um some pentecostals and charismatics and people like that not to stereotype too much but one observation i've made about that sort of person who's into the more mystical sort of gnostic stuff is that a lot of times they're repenting of some sort of pharisaical life and they're actually repenting into another pharisaical yes. life because yeah. oftentimes all that that mystic 
agnosticism is, is another set of rules for approaching God. You know, it's in, it can have this sort of vague nebulous veil around it. But, but really what it is, is you just need to do this. You just need to talk in tongues. You just need to. Yeah. And I've seen, I've seen people go both ways Mm -hmm. from that too. So that absolutely, I've seen two immediately as you talk examples of uh, students of mine when I was a college pastor who converted to Roman Catholicism. Right. And it was because they came out of this very emotionally driven experiential. If I do have my devotions every day, then this will happen. If, if I do this, than this and it's plug it in but it's all mystical spiritual and you know in the cloud somewhere they decide they're going to repent of that and they want something that's solid and substantial with teeth so they go from their evangelical sacramentalism all the way around to just hard roman catholic sacramentalism yeah. the bread the wine exactly the- either way it's paint by the numbers it's plug and play it's i'm not i don't have the faith to actually have a relationship with jesus christ or anything like that so I, there's a list of things that i will do be they the sacraments or be they yell the word grace out you know to yourself three times a day so that the spirit will enter into you or whatever it happens to be yeah and people like that are often off uh, very susceptible to flattery mm-hmm and so it's not surprising that Lydia Ivanovna, this strange countess character, is the one who sort of sets her tentacles into Alexei with these weird, uh, the, the the one, like I was saying, these little details Tolstoy will throw in, the whole fact that she wants to write him handwritten notes mm, yeah. because of the mystery that surrounds it. <laughs> right. That was really great. Yeah. And the whole satire, of, the whole portrayal of her character is the part that's the most worthy of Jane, I think, in the yes, whole novel. Yes, yeah, she was a very Jane Austenish character. Yeah. But that to say that it's, it struck very true that she would be able to flatter him and then draw him into this world easily mm. because he was humiliated and not just by Anna, but by, like Jake mentioned, him hitting the ceiling with that other guy getting the post that he thought he should have had and yeah, yeah, and I've definitely seen that too. The you know broken kind of men who are sanctified by their brokenness attract a certain kind of predatory female who just like I don't know how else to say it gets off on that kind of thing. Older women, usually older women, neglected by their husbands. Yeah, um, there's a there are characters like that in Dickens novels. They become philanthropists mm-hmm. and then they fall in love with these missionaries and stuff like that. Yeah, Mrs. I'm thinking of Mrs. Jellybee in um, Bleak House. She's a she's one of these sort of characters. Right, yeah. We're going to have to do Bleak House soon. And there's this uh, guy, he's a lot like Alexi Cold, and he got has huge giant orbs on his head. <laughs> Anyways. No, um, we're just going to have to do Bleak House soon because I think you find a way to bring Bleak House into pretty much every discussion we have. Yeah. Besides, um, um, besides Tolstoy, it is one of my favorite books. I think there's a lot of similarities, just as an aside, <coughs> a lot of similarities between Tolstoy and Dickens. Mm-hmm. I do think Tolstoy was just... By far the superior artist. A far superior stylist, if nothing Mm -hmm. else, I would say. I I mean, I think that he was just the better artist. He had had restraint that Dickens didn't have. But when Dickens could sing well, he really did sing well. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Well, the thing that keeps striking me as we talk about these characters is how different our read is from Sparknotes' read that I was looking over from a lot of the modern scholarship that they're talking about, which, which tends to just see Anna as a progressive proto-feminist who is breaking out of these patriarchal bounds that society has put her in. Therefore, of course, Alexei Alexandrovich, though we might feel a certain amount of sympathy for him, is the villain of the piece because he's represents everything that's cold and repressed and sexless and that's just dumb yeah it's just not true because anna represents this licentious um not not necessarily just licentious but this this the tragedy of how this world is set up and what it allows for and so he's showing the 
picture of all these. Well, go, Jake wants to say. You want to say something? I mean, I'm. I think the analysis is is important, but I just right at the very front of the book, what did Tolstoy put? Vengeance is mine. I will repay. Right? Like, what? <laughs> <laughs> I, in case you have any doubt about what his intentions were, right? But Jake, that's just uh, him reverting to the misogyny that he knows his readers want and that he kind of does. But when he's truly being empathetic, the way that he his heart wants to, he may Anna is his hero. Don't yeah. you think? Yeah. Yeah, sure. <laughs> That's and why she Mr. becomes Bennett a monster. Mr. Bennett was the hero of Pride and Prejudice. And right. Yeah, I'm going to say it right now. I nominate Anna Karenina for entrance into our monster squad. The first monster <laughs> of 17. Yeah. Wow. I'm with you. There right. we go. Monster squad. First. Get in there, Anna. <laughs> Get in there, Anna. <laughs> We're going to have to make a, 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 a 17 monster squad and then see how they would fare when we do our recap next year. Like we'll if see we had to pit them against if each we had other to pit in a fight? The monster squad. We have a strong monster squad from 16, so we'll see how many monsters. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see Kathy and Anna go up against one another. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> I, I'm going to put... We should have villain fights. Villain fights. Yeah. We'll have and, villain fights. And have to do that. I think Kathy might come out ahead. We didn't give Kathy a ton of respect in our Redux, but Kathy's... She's she's formidable, I think. She just crumbles kind of easy there at the end, but she was getting old. But she well, does they murder. both kill themselves, so you can't... Right. <laughs> but Kathy does kill other people, too. Right. <laughs> What's Dracula doing during this monster fight? He's, He's like, oh, two there watching. vulnerable ladies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what are we, who are we kidding? They just both become brides of Dracula. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. They kind of already are, right? Yeah. <laughs> Deep. Ooh. Ooh. Uh, take that, feminist scholars. <laughs> you guys are already brides of Dracula. Not Jake and Brandon, but... Feminist scholars. Feminist scholars, yeah. All the feminist scholars that listen to the book. Well, a lot of them are getting irritated because they want this life of free licentiousness that Anna has, and they want to romanticize it and say that um, it it should be a right that they have. And what Tolstoy is showing us is that the happiest life you can live is the life of a home where the husband and wife are devoted to one another and are not adulterers. Mm-hmm. That that brings misery. That that lifestyle... And willing to And they're willing to shame themselves to protect their marriage. Yeah. Right. And he's willing to be a willing man. to cross he's, the stupid social bounds and Levin just kicks yeah, that guy out because he's flirting with his wife. Why wouldn't like, you? <laughs> this guy's an idiot. An everybody, awesome. th- everybody hates him. That's an awesome right. scene, right? And everybody, and he just he doesn't care. He knows what his happiness depends on his confidence in his wife and their relationship, and he's not going to let anything you know. And it helps that he has amazing biceps. Right. <laughs> 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 Isn't it? We'll talk Am more I misremembering about that? Amazing. <laughs> the guy, he, one of the reasons he decides not to fight Levin is he looks at his arms, right? Right, yeah. At Levin's arms? Yeah. Oh. Well, so, that yeah. guy's just like fat and right. stupid. Though. That was one of yeah. the things that I think Jake sympathized most with about Levin was the <laughs> was biceps. How, oh, yeah. That's like, what yeah, I recognized amazing. most. I mean, I said, Jake is <laughs> at least the most ripped in this room. Right, yeah, no. We all know every day Jake gets up. Gets, the only gets thing ripped here. about me is my shirt. Right. <laughs> <laughs> when I try to put it on. So you would actually get this sort of novel that the feminists want about 20 years later with The Awakening by Kate Chopin. Hmm. Oh, why didn't that last? Yeah, and nobody ever so reads it. Nobody can. <laughs> but, you know, we read it now in undergraduate English courses right. because it should have been remembered. Right. And then you get all these other idiots. Like I had another, it might have been the same professor I read The Awakening with. She decided that she was going to have a book club where they only read the Anna and Vronsky parts to oh, so 
Anna Karenina and just got rid of the stupid leaven and kitty parts because who needs that? It's like, well, you might need it to help actually explain to you what Tolstoy meant. Right. <laughs> but, well, I mean, why do they get to so have the happy... That's what Tolstoy means to you, Brandon. It's not what he meant. Well, they get the last say in the novel. Their home, their household. Levin's epiphany and his happy... his his. Tolstoy says they have a happy house yeah. and that's what you get at the end. That is what Vronsky gets shipped off to war mm-hmm. and just tortured by what Anna has for. done to him. Really him and Anna both commit suicide. Basically we just don't get to see his final suicide, but that's what he's trying to do. I mean, yeah. And you see these people who are just broken apart by the fact that they tried to take the vengeance into their hands. Alexei in many ways tried to take vengeance into his hands and made him into a petty small man mm-hmm. and Anna took vengeance into her hands and regretted it to the last moment but yeah. train will was already cutting her in twain <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were going to say a beautiful metaphor for what happened, but instead nope. you just said she was already being cut apart by the train. <laughs> no beautiful metaphors here. No beautiful. Tolstoy had a nice metaphor, the light going out, the light by that which he'd nice been everything. Yeah. Um, well, how did you guys feel about, and this is like a big obvious question, but how did you guys feel about Russian society based on uh, reading this novel? What did, you, uh, what did you think Tolstoy was trying to say, and how did you feel about it? Pretty much felt about it the way... Levin felt about it. I would have not wanted to have ever lived in Moscow or St. Petersburg. Would have wanted to get out of there as fast as I could. I'll go so far, though, as to say that I felt about it like Levin did and that I I could be disgusted with it from a distance and I could also be kind of seduced by it yes. and just find myself spending the money and yeah. enjoying right. the drunken revelry. And yep. that's the nice thing about Levin is he he may be Tolstoy's stand-in and Tolstoy may have an inordinate amount of sympathy for him, but he's not presented as a goody two-shoes perfect. No, he is know. seduced by Anna. He yeah. doesn't withstand her wiles. He, and he knows it. Yeah. yeah. And, and he goes to these revelries with Oblonsky, and he, even after Kitty has told him not to, and he's, yeah, he's nuanced, man. Yeah, he's nuanced. Ain't that cool? <laughs> he's not a character out of Dracula. Come on. <laughs> Always just praising women. And- right. <laughs> well, he is a character out of Dracula sometimes because he's so earnest in his passions that he becomes almost, you know, when he, when he proposes to Kitty, suddenly everybody's happy and everything's happy and everything's good. You know, he sounds like one of those Dracula characters there. It's just like the best of all possible. Everybody world. loves me. Everybody loves him. Um, that didn't last long. Did no. It? <laughs> I love it. Well, I think Tolstoy does such a beautiful job of giving romance to the Levin scenes. The, the, the ultimate slap in the face to the feminists and the reason that they need to read the Levin scenes is because Tolstoy builds these great dramatic scenes out of the normal boring stuff that Levin goes out of. Something as simple as writing on a napkin with Kitty or whatever yeah. is a beautiful, beautiful little love short love story in and of itself their proposal is just glorious or the scene where she's giving birth and he's freaking out and turns to god or his after the proposal when he's walking on top of the world that's where the weight of all the of tolstoy's descriptive powers and psychological powers really comes into the novel that's what he gives it to not so much i mean vronsky and anna is handled a lot in flashbacks flash forwards exposition description we don't get to see a lot of what through other people's eyes through other people's eyes and then we get that final the denouement where anna's we finally do enter into anna you know just so we can die with her yeah and you also through levin you get are we talking about levin now sure (laughs) through levin you get like you were talking about this more so there is moral ambiguity but there is also a moral center to the novel too and so one of the frustrations feminists would have 
to keep beating up on them mm-hmm. is the fact that he doesn't praise sexual freedom. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And with Levin, you get a sense of sexual purity in a marriage being a good thing. And so like when he decides, it's a weird decision when he decides to give that diary to Kitty. He wants her to know what he had done. And you don't know what he had done, right. but it was enough that it shocked her. And just talking about truth too. I mean, there's a lot of truth to like when a, a young lady or something finds out what a men actually are. Right. <laughs> the, the whole horror of entering into the male world. Right. That's just, that's a very powerful scene. Yeah. Well, I think, did you guys think that, sorry folks, this conversation is just going to be all over the place if you're listening to this. And you know what? I make no apologizes. This is, I make no apologizes. <laughs> you shouldn't make any apologizes. <laughs> this is just going to be an all over the place conversation because there's just too much to talk about yeah, in this book and I don't big. even know how to arrange it in my head. So we're just going to talk about what interests us until we get to the end of this. I'm not even looking at my notes anymore. Did you guys think that Kitty was a successful character? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I thought she was a fantastic character. Yeah, she was awesome. But I bet femi- I'm just guessing here that people think she's like just kind of sweet and boring and you know yeah if i had to give the read what they would do is they would say she represents the weak woman who's perfect because of her weakness and tolstoy is just idealizing her because that's what yeah that's what he wanted a woman to be so she has to go off to the to the sanitarium when vronsky leaves but that sanitarium but scene the, is the perfect example yeah because what happens yeah she becomes motherly yeah well, she becomes motherly, and then she has her, like, moment afterwards where she's, like, you know. And she's going to, like, devote her life to God, and she has all these aspirations. It's a beautiful young person, you know. Yeah. It's and what, then she's, like, disabused of it. Yeah. yeah. Right? I'm sure you saw that kind of thing in college ministry. Oh, yeah. And, oh, yeah. Yeah, there's always, you know. I'm going to go to Africa, and I'm, I'm going to feed the poor. I'm going to go right, down yeah. and serve at the homeless shelter every week. And what you really try to do is not quench anybody's desire to serve others but help them to see themselves rightly understand themselves so that they they're able to do that sort of thing with sobriety and not just caught up in a super spiritual thing that's going to burn out and disappear and she she ends up getting there sort of on her own right yeah yeah she does when, when yeah. The, yeah the motherliness comes out when she ha- helps handle nikolai yeah. yeah, I mean, she's being everything that she admired about her friend at the spa or whatever exactly. that place was. But for the right reasons. For the right reasons. And it's beautiful. With her, you get that wonderful scene where Levin, I mean, not Levin, Tolstoy makes a distinction between men and women when he says that women also need to work, mm-hmm. but their work is in the home. Oh, yeah. So right. they just get he, married and... Yeah. But it's she's, wonderful. She's like, we're, so, we're going home. Yeah. But I, I mean, I see that in my own household, like... My wife, she has her work and it's at home and she has all these things that she does to make sure that the work at home is happening, you know, Mm. the way that she'll care for the beds and care for the little things that I would never think about or care about. But that just, it was eye opening to me reading it this time. I'm like, yeah, that's right. That's... That's I really, her work. <laughs> I, I thought that part was really that's, sweet that's, where Levin's actually early on in the marriage judging her for doing no work. And then Tolstoy jumps in and says, actually, she was preparing for she the greatest work was, that yeah. was going to yeah. come yeah. in her life. And Levin should have just like allowed her to have a little fun right now because this is just like, I thought that was sweet. Yeah. Yeah. So you see a lot of wisdom in Tolstoy, just a lot of, and that's something that that just totally depends on the author you're reading. Well, it's there. it's just very clear that you know what he walks through with his wife yes during those early days of marriage and with the kids and then the number of kids that they ended up having and you said they had like a ton and several of them died or something like yeah, that, that's right? right? But yeah, so you get to see him sort of with that maturity looking back. But but you see how attentive he was 
and how it, at least in hindsight how sensitive he could be tolstoy yeah that's yeah I mean. you yeah, see like with the death of his children you see that in that really moving scene with dolly when she remembers the child who had died mm-hmm. yeah and the curls as the dirt goes over it mm. it's just man dolly was one of the characters that really stuck out to me this time since we're just going all over the place she, yeah let's just do it man she is not somebody that i even really remembered all that well in, in, from my first reading of the novel but a lot of my favorite moments in this second reading were with her i mean i just think she provided a really good I'm thinking particularly of the scene where she goes and sees Anna and we get to see oh, yeah. Anna and Vronsky from her point of view. It's just a really nicely done scene. You get to see through her eyes, through her eyes, you get to see the poverty of everything they're giving themselves. Right. To. And they're building a hospital. I mean, they're just doing typical rich board people. Stuff. She says, she says that she had stepped on, she felt like she had stepped into the theater and she was the weak actor that was spoiling the fantasy. Mm hmm. You know, yeah, that audience. was a great line. Yeah, yeah it was a really, was really good. good because her her world with her kids and her nursing problems and all that that's real. Mm-hmm. But and then there's... these people are living this fantasy life where they have to like they're putting on their airs and they're putting on uh, what was she had a word or he had a word for what they were doing it wasn't putting on airs but it was I don't remember it was like assuming a something or other yeah. yeah they were assuming their personas and the projecting you know and it's attractive to her I mean she has that conglomeration it was only attractive of all to her or is principally attractive to her in her mind before she realized what it was and how exactly and you can understand why it's a, I mean her husband's a loser I, I, I yeah. you know yeah while she's driving while she's driving to see them she has that conglomerate of all the lovers she could have had mm-hmm. remember but then you get that scene and so i mean tolstoy writes this novel a lot like he's writing little essays to us mm. and so she has that thought and then at the end she leaves and she tell though she tells everybody that how wonderful it was in the back of her mind she's something was off yeah and doesn't she even leave early she's she, does. she's, she leaves yeah. earlier than she intended i have to get back to my kids i have to get back to reality suddenly all the things that she was trying to thought she wanted to escape from seem Sweet and attractive. Sweet and beautiful and, to yeah. her. Yeah. I mean, she's just, she's a good character. I admired her character, actually. Don't, I don't know how I felt about whether she should have stuck with her husband. That whole yeah. question of what, peop, what all these characters actually should have done is a weird one that combines Russian politics with an understanding of biblical marriage and i just don't know if it's even worth us trying to weed through like what what mr karenin should have done when he found anna was cheating on him and um well, i don't even really understand what the lawyer suggested that he could do well, well there had to be uh apparently adultery had to be grounded on proof yeah and so there has to be and no, no like such a thing confession as no fault, or there has to be real proof like he, witness he needed the letters which he had confession right he had a confession but but then after, that's right. But that right after that, though, is where he decides to forgive her. Right. Yeah. He finds out that, like, he leaves from there having heard almost directly afterwards that she might be dying or mm-hmm. something like that. And, and so that's, that's not the first time the novel presents the big theme of death to us, is it? I'm trying to think. I mean, it comes mostly, mostly through Levin's brother. It is before Levin's brother. And it's before Levin just starts thinking about, like, I'm going to die. Life is meaningless. I can't believe that I'm going to die. Levin kind of has a midlife crisis at some point. Well, when he first yeah realizes that Nikolai is yeah when Nikolai die. visits in the country and he, sees and he realizes yeah yeah but well, yeah because the chapter when Nikolai dies it's one of the only titled chapters in the novel right it's yeah, it's called death it's yeah called death. Yeah. <laughs> death. <laughs> yeah that's pretty great yeah the well 
totally jumping around here, but that death that death scene was, um, and most of my jumping around is just to say how fantastic I thought this or that was. But um, that death scene is pretty well done. Just the <laughs> the when he like this is the end. This is the end. He has this beautiful death scene, and then it takes him three, three days to three die. Days after that, he dies. everybody's just like die. <laughs> Please. I mean, that felt so true to life if you've ever been in any kind of situation, even remotely like that. And not to make totally sexist uh, generalizations, but... uh well, no, I'll just let Tolstoy make the sexist generalizations for me. I've definitely been in situations like that where I'm just like, boy, I'm glad women know how to just like do all this practical stuff because mm-hmm. here I am with all my big grand thoughts about life and it's not helping anybody. And you see, so this is something I might not have noticed if, uh, if it hadn't been taught to me already, if I didn't already know it. But I think it gives, it's just one of those great ways that Tolstoy has attention to detail. So like he just sort of casually mentions that Kitty always positioned herself so that he never had to move his head mm-hmm. and could look her in the eyes without ever having to move his head. And that that's something that I've been told as a pastor when you go on hospital visits that you do. You go and you position yourself in a way that whoever is lying in bed doesn't have to move mm. to see you. But he just sort of offhandedly, it's just like one of a number of things that she's doing that all shows how sort of intuitively or maybe not intuitively, maybe she learned it from Varenka or whatever her name is, but shows her out, shows how awesome. Well, there is a certain intuitiveness to it. And we see it also with the birth scene mm-hmm. yeah. where told, where Levin is completely helpless, <laughs> has no clue what to do. It's just a fantastic so awesome. scene. But all the women know exactly what to do. And he's just left there stunned by, what does he call it, this secret world of women yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and just amazed that they all kick into gear and, and any man who's been there at the birth of a child knows exactly what's going on yeah. we just feel like Ay. uh ah yeah uh, like it's um, my, i'm sorry yeah my wife and mother-in-law will never let me live down the fact that i tried to make anna laugh like i thought that would ease the one of her contractions they're just like you're an idiot what, are you telling jokes? <laughs> yeah, pretty much my mother-in-law at that point just said, well, you know, you probably should just go sit on the couch for a minute. Because it's, you know, it's Tolstoy making distinctions, and he's given, I mean, women have the, I don't know what you would say, the women have, not the heads up, they have the, they have the advantage over men here. Uh-huh. <laughs> you think? <laughs> and, but it's the same thing to go back to this death chapter. We see that with Levin and Kitty. Levin, like you said, wants to just sit there and brood with his brother and wait mm-hmm. for death in horror. But she knows ex- she's closer to death and to life than he is. Mm-hmm. And yeah. And as someone who does podcasts about great books and likes to think about life and God and feminism and all this stuff, you know, as someone who's a little bit like Levin in, in, in liking to think about things. Um, it's always a good reminder and I'm glad Tolstoy had the, I mean, I think Tolstoy has a good lesson for anybody that sometimes a cup of water to a dying man is so much more meaningful than, than all the great things that you could say or think. But it is this question of death and the way that death comes into the novel that links the two main characters, Levin and Anna together because they both consider suicide. Mm -hmm. They both. We just talk about how lame Dostoevsky would have been, like how much he would have just like pounded this point into the novel with speech after weird speech speech where somebody would have told a long parable and right you would have had a strange priest come in and tell you like 20 chapters of weird uh vronsky would have paced around and and moralized before he put the gun to his chest right. yeah. yeah it's the other yeah, like su- a- near suicide that we haven't mentioned <laughs> yeah 
That's right. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then somebody would make some weird, like, I will burn all my books and it will mean nothing except for to this one guy. And it's uh, <laughs> just like, <laughs> uh, anyway, that's besides the point. Dostoevsky. So Dostoevsky, we're just glad you didn't write this novel. Yeah. Good job. Not writing this novel. <laughs> that was the best thing you ever did <laughs> was not write this novel. What were we talking about? <laughs> oh, death and the way that it becomes, a, I don't know, a guiding image or metaphor throughout the mm-hmm. novel. So we see it here. You see it first in one of the, one of the weirdest. Asi- so he has these little nice aside scenes. Mm-hmm. One of them is the um, that I wanted to mention earlier was when Sergei tries to woo. Is it Verovna or whatever her name Ver- is? Verinka. Verinka. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great little. That was, that it's a sweet little short story. Yeah, it's yeah. A sad yeah. little story. Yeah, not much to say about it other than it's just he just does such a good job though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you're really there with you're like do it, do it, and then the moment passes and they and both you know feel, it and, and you, you know feel it. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah you know like, it too. Wow, he just let the moment pass. Oh no, <laughs> there's no going back. Yeah, there's no going back. <laughs> it's gone. Maybe there can be a going back, but not for him. We'll have to see. Well, but yeah, no, no. Let's just talk about the bees. That's too bad. But the other one is the horse race. Yeah. Oh, well, yeah, what a great little... And um, That's just a great scene, like suddenly you're in a Star Wars movie or something. It's just like... Well, pod yeah. racing. Yeah, it's so an most exciting people, little scene. A lot of people... Tolstoy likes to play with images. Mm-hmm. And so you have the image of the red bag that Anna has when she's first in the train. Mm-hmm. And then at the last, it's the thing that almost holds her back from throwing mm-hmm. herself in. Mm-hmm. And people make a lot about trying to uh, read that red bag and make and sense of the red bag. Trains in general are and trains, thing. But also this horse, of course. Black and lilac. They see her. Mm-hmm. They see the horses in image of anna right she is anna and so vronsky you could get kind of uh inappropriate there you can get fast, a little but, inappropriate yeah um, but ends up causing her to die right he breaks her breaks her and this with one subtle wrong movement well, i think it is symbolic or indicative of vronsky's whole character and that he's this very dashing guy that always looks like he's going to do something awesome and then he always falls short be it his military career be it i mean he's really just kind of a goofball he's kind of dudley do right not morally but just in terms of landing flat down on his face every time vronsky's more of a bumbling idiot even than anna's husband is or even than steven even than all the bumbling idiots but he in the still novelist. wins that's the other thing is like he's always just on the cut it's not dudley do right he's on the cusp of greatness and then he always screws it up like he could have had anna right and he screwed it up. He could have won that horse race. He could have race. won he that horse race. He just did something and dumb. He and screwed it up. And, and the he, horse died. Like, he does something he dumb. He could have had a brilliant military career. And he screwed it up. He could have been an awesome landowner. And he, and he screwed it up. Everything was always poised to go his way. And he always found the one little thing to do to blow it up. Right. And he manages to destroy other people in the process, in the process. almost unthinkingly. Yep. He's just going after what he wants, and it's like making that one bad move on the horse that breaks its neck, and the horse has to be put down. And I don't know what else there really is to say about Vronsky as a character. Yeah, he's young, and he's... He is exactly what Kitty's dad said he is Yeah, at, yeah. at first, and then we get more depth beyond that. He Something tries to shoot himself, to with, come, which comes as a surprise, because up to that point, I, I assumed that he was more shallow than that, even. Yeah, he's like that actor who plays uh, the new Kirk in the new Star Trek movies. Yeah, just like he's, a handsome, square jaw. Yeah, but he's of. got more depth as an actor. He surprises you. <laughs> 
Like yeah, metaphor. he can actually act. <laughs> well, and you, when you realize at the end of the novel that that Anna, in fact, was wrong about Vronsky, that her jealousies were unfounded, he was willing to be faithful for her. She got her revenge. He was devastated. He's going to go kill himself in the Balkans or whatever it is because life has lost all meaning. He really was wrapped up in her. And was traumatized by... And was traumatized by seeing her cut in half. And um, his affection for her... I mean, there's a certain extent to maybe even a doomed relationship. She throws herself in front of a train. You're going to feel bad about it. But yeah, because Vronsky's interesting. He's not stepping. Stepping. He's not just dallying with her. Stepping would never have committed like he did. No way. No. He would have bought her off with some jewelry and sent her back to her husband or whatever. He wouldn't have cared. He'll dally with or he'll bed the little governess and then he'll go bed the ballerina and then he'll... He would never deal with somebody so serious as Mm -hmm. Anna. He would see right away that that's trouble. Mm-hmm. And he would have ran quickly from that. Right. Yep. But, yeah. It's not what he's in for. Yeah, there's a certain dignity and you can see seriousness to Vronsky. mistake yeah. this novel for a doomed romantic novel. You can see why people want to read it that way. Because there is... I mean, Tolstoy's smart enough to give us what is attractive about their relationship. I mean, he sees it in a three-dimensional way such that... He can't deny what it is that makes them. I mean, it's what I think Jake alluded to with us as readers of the novel. I don't know whether you alluded to this on mic or not, but you've said several times now in talking about the novel on or off mic that what's disconcerting about the novel is that Tolstoy is so compassionate to everyone that at a certain point you don't know whether he is actually willing to make any kind of value judgment. Yeah, I mean, it's clear that he does ultimately. Yeah. But but yeah, at certain points... In the novel, and I think that there. I mean, I think this is one of those novels that if you're going to read it, you got to commit to read the whole thing because mm-hmm. that the first, I don't know, third or whatever, he really lets you get swept up in the romance of Anna and Vronsky and to live in their adulterous hearts if you let yourself in a way that's just mm-hmm. really dangerous. And if you if you stick it out, you'll be disabused of the romance of it. Well, and the last thing, folks, I'm just going to admit, I use Spark Notes. I read the book fully, but then I use Spark Notes to remind myself of things as I prepare my notes for these sessions. The, the last thing that Spark Notes says in their notes about, like, the thing that Spark Notes ends with on Anna Karenina is many readers are disappointed because Tolstoy gives us this great affair where Anna tries to do this thing and then he kills her off and then he gives the last whole section to Levin. And shouldn't we just be kind of disappointed by that? Because, I mean, that's, that's their final note for, that's what they want you to take away from the book is that Tolstoy is doing something that we as moderns can't even really appreciate. Go read Twilight. Yeah. No kidding. Seriously, forget the classics and why they're classics. Forget everything about what makes a real novel great and go read Twilight. If that's what you, Roman, want. you know, I, honestly, go even non sarcastically, go read it. You'll get more of what it is that you apparently want out of it. You won't have to wade through a bunch of Sergei going on about boring Russian politics. Mm-hmm. You know, you might as well. Life's short. Don't read Anna Karenina. No, leave that to smart people like us. Yeah, this novel is not meant to make you feel good about their relationship. And if you're wooed by it, then um, Tolstoy had your number from the beginning. So Right. I mean, this Because, whole... yeah, you're supposed to want what Levin and Kitty have at the end. And you're supposed to run kicking and screaming from the path that Anna and Vronsky end up taking. Yeah. You're supposed to see how it ends. See the horror that they live through. See the torture of broken trust that they have to deal with and the fears that surround Anna and Vronsky and say, you know what? I could do without that. That looks freaking miserable. Yeah. 
she dies, he's probably going to die unless he bumbles that up too, which he probably will. Um, there's a daughter that came into the world that nobody cares about. And there's a son that's probably, that's well on his way to becoming just as cold and emotionally destroyed as his father was. So there's all this terrible collateral damage, even apart from, and we realized that Levin even could have been collateral damage as much as he's a good man. You know, if he'd been a little drunker and she'd been a little more spiteful, he could have been collateral damage. So, so you're right about uh, Tolstoy wants us to see how tempting it is. And I think he wants to woo us towards their side very often throughout the novel. But in the end, we're not supposed to end there. And if that's what you want, then you're dumb. You're dumb. Uh, I let's come back to the question of Russian society and how we felt about it. I don't know that we ever actually answered that about the way that they handle this adultery, all that kind of stuff. Well, it was interesting because you get the sense that this was different than the other adulteries that happened. It was only different because it was allowed to be obvious. Yeah. Well, even insofar as Vronsky is allowed to get away with it, people still feel like he's made a mistake and you know he's giving up his career. He's going too far. He's not just playing the game like everybody wants yeah, him to But even game. he comes to a point where it actually can be redeemed except that you find out that Anna's had herself sterilized is tied up in knots about really just herself. Mm. Like, you know, it actually... I think it's absolutely fascinating, by the way, just as a side point, that even in reading the novel again, I didn't remember it, and I assumed that Anna would get the information about the divorce being denied, and then she would kill herself. It's a nice touch that she never actually finds out that the divorce was denied. She just kills herself anyway, because ultimately it doesn't matter. She's trapped either way. She's trapped within herself. She's not trapped by society, as awful as society is. I do think it's interesting. There are people, perhaps Christians, that would argue for the utility and goodness of this type of society perhaps like the federalist i could see them saying like like they just did the article about how baby it's cold outside is not rapey because men should be seductive and women should be trying to maintain their virtue and that's kind of how you know they want to go back to that kind of mad many kind of thing or something i don't know i I see people really arguing i can see conservative a certain type of conservative type of person saying a woman's virtue somehow is more important and a young man does have to sow his wild oats they wouldn't put it that way but that's basically what they would say in a more clever way than i'm just doing is there anything to that or is tolstoy's indictment of this society in fact right or is he indicting the society at all? Well, he's indicting it, and he's right. I don't see any... I don't agree with whatever the Federalist is trying <laughs> yeah, to I don't know. say there. I'm kind of setting up a straw man because um, I'm not able to articulate exactly what the they'd only, say. The only virtue is that at least there are some, There's s- some strong legal discouragements for really giving yourself over to adultery, but everybody's just found their workarounds, and it's all hypocrisy. In Russians, in this Russian society? Yeah. Yeah, because... Yeah. I mean, just the absence of no-fault divorce requires something more of you. Yeah. If you, you set this in modern-day America, Anna and Vronsky just walk away. Right. And she sues and gets custody or half-custody rights of Suryoza, and there's no problem. Whenever she needs, feels like she needs Suryoza's approval or doesn't have it, she gets to be wacko and manipulate him or whatever. She feels like she needs to do, abuse him, guilt trip him, take out her suspicions on him. or You see that sort of thing happen all the time. But it just becomes a very different drama. I mean, where I think Tolstoy's right 
and good is in condemning this society for maybe not the unfairness, but the fact that there's so much shame attached to what Anna does and, and no, shra- no shame for the Vronskys of the world, no shame for the Stevas of the world. That is wrong. The progressive liberal solution is let's just make sure there's no shame for anybody, which is dumb. The real solution is let's make sure there's shame for everybody. But it is awful that the, a certain sort of corrupt patriarchal, as, as much as we might all in this room support a certain sort of patriarchy, there is a corrupt sort of old dying patriarchy that often has this kind of we saw it in the 60s with the james bond mentality and the mad men type meant you know that boys gonna be boys so they're wild oats and seduce mm-hmm. women and and the and the wife was okay being seduced as long as it didn't become too public right as long as it was secret but she has to pers- have some sort of a facade of virtue yeah um, if that did go sort of both ways though right alexi alexandrovich was willing to make maintain that relationship and you get hints that there are other other relationships out there that do work that way where you have the women who have their young attendants and just as so long as there's an agreed that they're not but doing yeah, anything the, embarrassing uh, in public i mean and there was a certain applauding going on for both anna and Vronsky. yeah at the uh, beginning yeah at the beginning well it's everybody's tv i mean they're just like it's something fun to talk about it's, it's like their water cooler yeah, it's you just know? they took it t- farther than was acceptable their love was just too strong right their love was too strong would you, would you guys would you guys consider what they had to be love at all can we use the word love for for what happened between vronsky and anna no nope just two people infatuation and lust fulfilling maybe. appetites that uh, that whole idea that love is just the expression of my desires at any particular moment is just that's a really good way to get yourself trapped into a corner where you think the only option is to throw yourself in front of a train i mean yeah <laughs> yep. <laughs> Wise words, Pastor Menzel. Okay, so what is what is love then? What is according to Tolstoy? We'll say what Tolstoy says, and then we'll say if he's right. What is what is Tolstoy presenting as the ideal for a romantic relationship? Wait. So he actually has a part where he says what love is. No, I'm just where he says what love is. I thought you were about to give us the definition. No, 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 no. Oh. I'm just saying, insofar as he this story proves anything about what goes into a true romantic partnership or love relationship. Well, the closest we get to a definition is the end when Levin says it's to quit being such a narcissist and start caring about others, start giving to others. And For Vronsky and Anna, love is only ever about themselves, even when it's about each other. When Vronsky is all about letting Anna walk all over him and all about securing her happiness, it's because, how would you put it? There's a, well, shoot, I don't know that I'm going to actually be able to parse this. And there's an expected quid pro quo. That's not exactly what you want to say, but I mean, he knows ultimately he wants her to be happy, so he'll be happy. And so he'll mm-hmm. get what he wants. It's an un, in, inelegant way of saying what you're trying to say. He doesn't want her to be happy because he wants her to be happy or because he cares at all whether she's happy. He only processes things through himself. Is she being nice to me? She has a power over me. And that power over me is something that I need to control and master. And if we can find an equilibrium, right. then we'll both sort of get to be happy. Will she be cold? Will she be cold? What do I say? Mm-hmm. How do I fix it? What, are, what numbers do I plug into this algebra equation? to make it equal happy. How did you guys feel about Levin's final redemption and all that, the the final few chapters where he kind of puts it all together? Did you think Tolstoy figured it out? Were you disappointed by a lack of spiritual maturity in Tolstoy? Or did you think he nailed it? Or I mean, of course, I wish that he had come to the real right conclusions. Right. But How would you say the real right conclusions differ from the ones that he did come to? Well, his are vague 
the sense of the good Mm -hmm. and bringing and doing good for everyone. And of course, the real right conclusions would have been awareness of his sin and despair over it and turning to Christ. That's not part of the equation with Tolstoy. How did you feel about the ending, Jake? I liked it. This is going to sound counterintuitive. I think it'll sound counterintuitive. I sort of like it from an artistic standpoint, but I don't so much like it from any real standpoint. And I think what I mean is all throughout the book, Levin, or Levin, Tolstoy has had this theme of being down to earth. There's, what's the French phrase that he's always pulling up? You've got basically people that live in the clouds and it's everything's theoretical and they get way off track. And then Levin is what always brings him back is being tied one way or another to the earth to real life. Kitty's described as being a down-to-earth girl, almost mockingly by by some people, but it's actually what's awesome about her. And so he comes and tries to bring it back to this very uh, low-key, I guess the secret of life is not living for myself, and but living for God and for others. And I realize that that's not going to change me, you know, dramatically. And I'm still going to say things I regret and have a bad attitude about certain things and I'm not going to be able to just magically overcome all of these things because I have the right thought or right feelings in general about life. But I guess that's kind of okay. And there, there's something real and beautiful about that. And art, I want to say artistic about that. And so I guess why I think that's sort of counterintuitive is I think the natural desire is for something more cathartic. Mm-hmm. And that's what we would describe as being more artistic is something that had a more cathartic ending, you know, a temptual moment or whatever. But the whole point of the book is that Anna goes running after a temptual moment and ends up under it, a train and ends up eating dust. And it's about the little things. She sows the wind, she reaps the whirlwind. Mm. She, yeah. Um, so from that perspective, I mean, it's it's a it's a great ending. I think it tracks with the character up up to and including the lame Orthodox church that he seems to be a part of, which Tolstoy makes a little bit of fun of through him. Or maybe it doesn't make fun of, but shows for what it is. And as far as the spiritual journey goes, I can respect it insofar as it's a great first step. Like I think I've had that moment. I think a lot of mm-hmm. people have, mm-hmm. where everything suddenly falls into place and suddenly what you later in your christian journey hopefully realize is something kind of shallow but you you need it you need that like it's like that spark that starts the engine or whatever where you're just like oh i can be good and nice and there is a god I mean, that's a great thing to happen it, you can't stop there and the fact that tolstoy is kind of preaching stop there is what makes it less than it yeah could be. i think that's the thing levin has a great little beginning of dealing with death and dealing with eternity and realizing there are two options here one is go kill myself and the other is live for god then the conclusion is don't think too much about what it means to live for god right and don't tell your wife because she won't understand that whole part was kind of weird that was pretty weird and dumb part of that that wasn't dumb was he was having this inner spiritual moment and she comes up to him or whatever and he is glowing and wants to talk to her and she says would you run and fetch the something or other Mm -hmm. (laughs) and it sort of ruins it for him that's a very real down to earth (laughs) that happens kind of thing (laughs) in that moment i think i think you would just say ascribe it to a fault and love it because i think that that's the natural response in that moment is we'll forget about it like if you can't like magically peer into the depths of my soul and what's going on in this moment right now and you tell me to go when I'm about to do this if you can't see that then forget it yeah oh never mind (laughs) and that's just it's a really uh, obnoxious jerkish way to process it (laughs) yeah it is and I do it all the time so (laughs) 
Yeah, I think it speaks well of Levin. He's got a new maturity in that a couple times now in the novel, he's been so swept up into, you know, he proposes to Kitty, suddenly everything's great, everything's perfect. He's going to die, so therefore everything's... But this time, he's able to do it with some restraint and wisdom about himself he really you know yeah i'm gonna yell i'm still gonna yell at the surfs i'm still gonna be irritated with my wife when she doesn't do what i said about the baby in the rain thing you know i'm still not gonna just all magically change but that's okay still finding it hard to bond with my son right well i feel like there should be more to say about this book but i'm not sure exactly what it is it's it's one of those books that's it was like shakespeare it's so huge what do you say about it yeah I mean, there's stuff we haven't even talked about. Some of the most beautiful, one of the most heart, probably the, the part, the only part that really made me cry was uh, when we first go into Anna's son, however you pronounce his name, when we first see his point of view. But that whole, that whole, there's a whole chapter that was dedicated to Sir Yosa. That chapter was great, but actually there's a throwaway part that comes even before that. Indeed, the boy did feel that he could not understand this relation between Anna and his her father, oh, yeah, and yeah. he tried, was unable to make out what feeling he ought to have for this man, Vronsky, with a child sensitivity to any show of feelings, he saw clearly that his father, his governess, his nanny, all of them not only disliked Vronsky, but looked at him with disgust and fear, though they never said anything about him, while his mother looked at him at, as at a best friend. What does it mean? Who is he? How should I love him? If I don't understand, I'm to blame, or else I'm stupid or a bad boy, the child thought. And this led to his probing, questioning, partly inimical, well, eh, inimical expression to his timidity and unevenness, which so embarrassed Vronsky. That broke my heart. That little... Is that little sentence? Mm-hmm. That's what happens, adulterers. Think about the children, why don't you? This must all be my fault somehow. Right. And then you see him longing for his mother to come back and romanticizing her and hoping for her like she's Santa Claus and he doesn't even believe in And death. he wants to be the little boy that his dad thinks he is, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, just... And then the last time you see him, he's going cold and he's probably going to be just like his dad and it's really sad. I mean, because he's just like, oh, yeah, having feelings is stupid. and Turns out it hurts. Yeah. So I'll just be one of the boys. And... Well, a great novel with so many great parts. Uh, what was you guys'? Here's a good nice deep literary question what was your what was your favorite part what you stuck with you this time what was just a cool image or scene or whatever all things loving and kitty yeah i'm thinking all my favorite scenes the childbirth scene i thought the proposal scene this time just when he's writing oh, those yeah. little acronyms and it. she knows what they are and then he <laughs> so writes the big long so one it's i liked the ending scenes too where he goes out and well a lot of it's just because it's so well drawn that it feels like it could be from your own life but where he finds her under the tree and she's all timid and she just wanted she just had to change the baby and he's terrified and she's terrified and it's just (laughs) the great thing about this novel is you don't leave or I don't think you should leave with your favorite parts being the big dramatic parts Mm -hmm. The, the stuff that's the warmest that you fall in love with is the, the Levin and Kitty stuff. Yeah. It's the little things. It's the little things in life. I can't believe that's going to be our takeaway from Anna Karen. It's the little things, but uh, that's well, kind of the book. I mean, see, this is what's so hard about this book, actually. <laughs> Is it, it's not, it's not, at least for me, it's not the book, it's it's my life. So I'm reading the Kitty and Levin scenes, and I just want to stop reading and go be with my wife. I know. <laughs> or, um, <laughs> so whether it's scenes from my childhood, or my honeymoon, or my early, or birth of my first son, are really great. And, uh, but even just the little things, like you're saying, like, I got a real kick out of, um, there's nothing really great or profound about when that, what's it, Vasily, or Vasilyevich, or when Steve shows up with the fat guy mm-hmm. right <laughs> like 
No, it's just, just everything about Levin's, the little turns in Levin's mind and his attitude. <laughs> the guy drives the I carriage know that, into the mud and doesn't even like <laughs> realize what he's done. No, I mean, <laughs> just even he shows up and suddenly Levin's countenance changes and you can't quite say why. <laughs> his attitude becomes short with everybody and then he just starts posturing here and there and I'm like, I know that guy. Little things like that I got a big kick out of. Yeah. Yep. Levin, you suck. <laughs> Levin, you suck. Yeah. Go away. <laughs> it was, uh, like, I don't necessarily know that I read, for example, Hemingway and felt that I could go off and um, try to live a little better than I did before. Right. But after reading The Pride and Prejudice or reading this, you feel like you can go off and at least pretend to try. Right. <laughs> I think that's one of the best things you can say for a novel. Well, I think what, what great art does is, this is going to sound so cliche and lame, but it makes you stop and smell the roses. I don't know why it is that, I mean, this is like one of the questions for the ages. Like, it's almost like, what is art? I mean, why is it, why does it somehow transform and make an experience beautiful to simply see it re- reflected back to you accurately? Like, you see a painting of a, a mother with her son, and it suddenly brings beauty to all mothers and sons. And if you saw that same mother and son in real life, you wouldn't even think about how beautiful they are. But you see a good painting. Levin, all the Levin stuff is like that in this book, where it's just like common human experience. Tolstoy really doesn't have anything super profound to say about them. He just accurately captures them and somehow... Well, I think part of it is because we like to live in faith, have these incorrect perceptions of what we are, and then he helps bring it back and make grounded in truth. So think about the scene with the painter. The, they His painting of the religious scene was supposed to be what was amazing, but they all were drawn to the two boys fishing. Mm-hmm. And that was what they loved. And I think that there's some truth in art just being simple and straightforward that... When you're living real life, you're just sort of living it. It's easy to get caught up in your mindset, your mentality, going through whatever emotions you go through. Art simply asks you to stop and see what you see. Yeah, that's why I kept wanting to say stop and smell the roses, even though it's the poriest of cliches. It's just like... Yeah, I mean, a painting says stop and consider this one thing from this. I mean, and there can be lots of things going on in a painting, but it's a scene, a moment, stop, full stop, this one moment. In a book, it's a collection of moments. It sort of, but it removes the, even the fact that it takes away, you know, visual and audio and makes Mm. you. Well, it's almost, it's like there's such romance. There's so much poetry and excitement and everything that God's built in the world. And you have so few opportunities to just stop. Stop, put everything on pause. You know, your wife's giving birth. You can't just put it on pause and contemplate. This is the meaning of life and of death and of regeneration and blah, blah, blah. But you put it in book form and suddenly you can. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what a great artist like Shakespeare or Jane Austen or yeah. Tolstoy gives you. Allows you to reflect on the fact that there's beauty to taking a walk with your family, holding your child, holding your son's hand, all these things. Yeah, or just... And there's real beauty to it. Even a courtship and how that makes you feel and all kinds of different things. So in summation, is every happy family alike and every unhappy family unhappy in its own way? It sure sounds clever, but my inclination is to say every happy family is alike and every unhappy family is alike in all the same ways. (laughs) If you just look at Steva and Dolly and Anna and Vronsky, at the end of the day, yeah, Dolly and Steva are able to make their peace with some things, but they don't have a happy family. For the same reasons that Vronsky and Anna can't have a happy family, because there can't be any real intimacy. There can't be any real trust. There can't be any real love or respect. So at the end of the day, yeah. I mean, Dolly has has better circumstances, so she's able to cope. She has better internal coping mechanisms, if you want to call it that. 
which is pretty arguable to say because all that really means is that she has the ability to remain unhappy with an unfaithful husband. She's also got... Uh, she has her kids and she's got uh, Levin and Kitty. And she know, She also knows that when... I mean, part of what's driving the, the fantasizing is pretty soon Levin and Kitty are going to have kids and they're not going to have time to give me the emotional and financial support everything that I need from from Steva. Right. And so then what? Yep. She, she may be the real tragedy in the book. Certainly the one that I feel the most pity for besides the kids. I'd buy that. Every happy family is alike and every unhappy family is alike. Yeah, I'd buy that. Because I can't think of how the happy families are unalike. And so that's kind of what I was going through in my own head is that they all seem to be happy because they are able to be content with their situation and the unhappy families are unhappy because of jealousy and betrayal and they all have their similarities and they would all become the other in the same same way i think where you might argue that every happy family is unalike is that just in the depth of feeling and experience and everything that he throws into those set pieces with levin you realize that every person that experiences childbirth or courtship or marriage for the first time it's going to be a grand adventure for them even though they're just learning the same boring stuff that everyone learns nothing special about what happens to levin in the whole book but man does tolstoy make it special by showing us it through Levin's eyes. The details are different. Mm-hmm. So we're going to go with every happy family is alike. Every unhappy family is alike. In their own ways. In their own ways. Which are all the same. Which are all the same. Huh. <laughs> <laughs> and that is why we did not write. <laughs> 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 Booking was written and produced by Nathan Alberson. It was executive produced by Nathan Alberson and Jacob Menzel. It was performed by, you guessed it, Nathan Alberson and Jacob Menzel, along with their good friend Brandon Chastine, the PhD ABD. You can find Warhorn Media online, all kinds of places. Warhornmedia.com is a good place to go for, like, probably the number one Warhorn destination, as far as I'm concerned. Number two might be uh, Warhorn on Facebook, Warhorn Media. You can look up our Facebook page. You can do facebook.com slash warhornmedia, I believe, to get to that. You can find us on Twitter as at warhornmedia. You can find us on Instagram as at warhornmedia. Both wonderful resources for all your warhorn social media needs, of which I know you have many. You can find the bookening on Twitter as at the bookening, and you can follow us for the bookening news and random quotes about books and stuff. It's a fun little Twitter account, if I do say so myself. You can find me on Twitter as at Nathan Fitnight, a little at Not Famous Nathan. You can find Jacob as at Jacob Menzel. You can hit us up, ask us questions, make suggestions, disagree. You think Anna Karenina is a great progressive feminist novel? Hit us up on Twitter, baby. We'll not respond. Not respond, you. probably. <laughs> <laughs> we'll retweet you with a bunch of. Emojis. <laughs> yeah. Flat-faced emojis that are just like, whatever, dude. Or lady. Dudes and or ladies can be feminists. Yeah. I hate to drag the ladies into this, but... Women can use computers, too. Women? Yeah. Yeah. That's one of the problems They've with our society. taught how to. Yeah. By men. <laughs> Come on, guys. <laughs> yeah. If you want to read more about why women shouldn't use computers... If you want to figure out why we shouldn't use computers, then just go to warhornmedia.com. <laughs> <laughs> um... I just got it. That's funny. <laughs>